0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at AskChrisShelton at gmail.com. If you leave your questions in the comments section here on YouTube, I may or may not get them or see them, but if you send them to me by email, I will definitely put them in my queue. Okay, I had a great podcast this week, really, really happy with this one. This was with a man named uh, Louis Martin. He was m- m- part of a martial arts cult, and I have talked about this. I have been asked many times to further elaborate and talk about how martial arts dojos can become little destructive cults, uh, and or big constructive cults, actually. And in uh, this particular instance, we spent a lot of time breaking it all down, talking about his experiences and um, in and out of the cult. And I think you guys are going to find it quite an interesting interview if you haven't seen it yet. So I would really encourage you to check that out. With this also being the Christmas season, I wanted to plug my merchandise. I don't really plug this a lot. I don't know if any of you guys even really know that I have this out there. But uh, below is the link to my Spreadshirt shop. And on that, shop. I've put about, I don't know, 20, 25 different designs up that I've created that you can put on shirts, cups, mugs, whatever, hats. And, you know, it's the season for that. It's not too late to order something through there and get uh, fulfillment on that and uh, have some nice critical thinking merchandise to share with your friends and family. All right, that plug being over, let's get on with your questions. Isabella Morin. Near the end of your podcast on martial arts cults with Louie Martin, you were discussing high rates of suicide and cancer for OT8s. Regarding cancer rates, you explained psychosomatic reasons, high stress factors, why OT8s might develop cancers. I was surprised you didn't mention that they also might believe themselves above seeking medical care and rely on their OT powers to cure themselves. Was it an omission, as can happen during a spontaneous conversation? Or do you not think it to be the case? Hey, thanks, Isabel. No, of course, I would uh, definitely include that under reasons why Scientologists, especially at the top of the bridge, would not necessarily, um, would, would get cancer or develop cancer or develop symptomology of cancer or other major illnesses or diseases and not do anything about it or sort of try to uh, how they say, "Glow it right," or "Make it go right," or sort of think it—you know—outthink it out of existence. Like, and they call it—they don't call it thinking; they call it postulating, creating a a positive postulate. In Scientology, is a is a determined, intended thing that you want to have occur. And the higher you go up the bridge to total freedom, and the more case you've gotten rid of, and the more you know, the accumulated stress and trauma of your past. Uh, four quadrillion years, (laughs) the more you've gotten rid of that through Scientology auditing, the more ability and the more powerful your ability to postulate is supposed to become. And this is a big thing in Scientology, making positive postulates. And I think I've talked about this recently, so I won't belabor the point. But um, Scientologists really are um, would prefer to not, of course, have to spend money on medical stuff and Uh, Because they want to save it all for the bridge, because the bridge is expensive. And also, of course, Hubbard wrote in many places that uh, a lot of illnesses, perhaps all illnesses in one degree or another, are psychosomatic in nature and therefore should be able to be addressed spiritually through Scientology auditing or counseling or education. And that's how Scientologists think they're supposed to be able to deal with this stuff. And there's actually even a bulletin called Solve It With Scientology, where Hubbard uh, sort of promotes this point of view. Uh, there are other bulletins, of course, uh, sort of CYA, kind, you know, cover your ass kind of stuff, with uh, Hubbard writing that, of course, if somebody has a medical condition, they should go get that addressed. We must work with the doctors, you know, sort of thing to provide you know, treatment for people, but he really, it's, it's sort of almost a shoot or poo-pooed when it comes time for the rubber to meet the road as to how Scientologists are actually going to live their lives. It is only when things are really, for the most part, it's only when things have gone a bit too far that they'll actually start going to seek real medical care or attention. And I have to say, of course, that there are exceptions to all of this and that there are t- plenty of public Scientologists who don't have any problem at all going to the doctor at the slightest hint of a, you know, sniffle or sneeze or something. But again, by Scientology, they're encouraged to solve it with Scientology. And when you get to the level of staff and especially the level of the Sea Org, these don't, you know, the, the, the let's go solve it with medicine is hardly an option for them and they, um, they're sort of stuck on a Sea Org base, they have to have special permission to even leave, et cetera, et cetera, With OT8s, their mindset is very similar in many ways to the mindset of a Sea Org member because they have gone so far up the bridge, they've had to jump through so many hoops, they've had to get so much security checking by the time they get to OT8, that they um, they really do it, it changes you and it changes your mindset and I I can't even speak really fully intelligently about the full mindset of an, of, mindset of an OT eight because I didn't go through OT eight myself I've only spoken with others about it who did and um, and it like but it but it changes you and if you maintain the Scientology bubble world mindset. The OT8 one is almost a whole other bubble world inside the bubble world, right? It's a construct of a construct kind of a thing because you have created this reality for yourself that you are an individual who is among a handful of people in the entire universe who has achieved this state of spiritual existence and and certainty and ethical level as well, right? You feel like you are the most moral, ethical person uh, that you know or could possibly contemplate. Uh, So there's a lot of puffery, right? There's a lot of puffed up uh, arrogance and conceit to an OT8 uh, because they've been built up over all that time. I'm sure you get the point. And that alone can also contribute to uh, why they wouldn't necessarily feel that they should be seeking any help or need any help. So that's just another factor to, to pile in on top of all of this. So it's there's a lot going on there. But yeah, that's I think one of the reasons why we do hear about that and we don't hear about ot8s. Um, you know, going to the hospital and getting some help. <laughs> you know, at least not at least not until it's too late and then they've died and you know it could have been prevented. Francis Gerard. Does the appointment of Ka Khan really exist in Scientology? And if so, does John Travolta have the right to kill people? All right, this I have seen answered in other places. I don't know that I've ever taken it up. I might have mentioned it once or twice in the past. But I thought I would actually print out the actual issues from Hubbard on what Ka con is and what it means, and I'm going to talk about Scientology ethics and justice here, okay This is only a couple pages. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to show you that these is the only places that I could find where Hubbard specifically mentions ka as a an award or an ethical standard to achieve it's not it's not all over the place in Scientology out of the thousands of pages of materials. This is the, these are the only places where it's, where it's mentioned at all. Uh, the entire time that I was in the Sea Org, the entire time that I, was, that I was in Scientology, I heard Ka Khan, uh, again as a status uh, for ethics, brought up once. You know, this is not a common thing in Scientology. This is Scientology minutiae. That all being said, let me tell you what Hubbard talks about there's a policy letter that he wrote in 1965 called "Ethics Protection," and this is where this Kakon thing was instituted. Um, he talks here: the concept or the the philosophy of ethics in Scientology is that it is it, ethics exists uh, on on an individual level. The individual is the one who's making ethical or unethical decisions for himself, and the point or purpose of ethics is survival uh, to the longest, farthest, you know, largest degree possible. And the most ethical concept or idea would be the one that encompassed the most number of people or, or entities or living things and benefited the most of them out of all of the the things that it happened to touch or affect or have a consequence on. So ethics is supposed to be leading into ideal or good behavior, and. Hubbard doesn't really get into the whole concept of good from my point of view, evil from your point of view. You know, he doesn't get into the relativeness of viewpoints when it comes to ethics or how, or how these are really just mental constructs we invent. You know, there's no arbitrary absolute ethics any more than there's, you know, some absolute idea of, of objective truth out there, you know, that we can perceive. It's impossible for us to do so. So uh, so Hubbard doesn't get into any of those sticky entanglements with his ethics system. He tries to keep it fairly simple. And he says um, a couple things. So I'm just going to read a few, a few things to give it to you in Hubbard's own words, and then we'll get specifically to the ka Khan thing. Hubbard says ethics, um, ethics actions must parallel the purposes of Scientology and its organizations. Ethics exists primarily to get technology in. And what Hubbard means by that is that auditing and training in Scientology are technical procedures. There's, there's methods, there's very specific rote procedures you do when you're auditing somebody and even when you're training somebody. I've talked about these, right, if you listen to those podcasts on this stuff. So they're considered technology. That's how they're talked about in Scientology. I, I think most of you guys know this, but in, for newcomers or people who've not seen this before, that's why he talks about ethics— existing only to get the tech used or done. And the tech is the thing that's actually supposed to handle the person or deal with them and their aberrations and nonsense. Hubbard says tech can't work unless ethics is already in. When tech goes out, ethics can and is expected to get it in. So if you have an auditor, let's say, and he's flubbing, he's messing up pre-clear after pre-clear, he's getting bad results, not happy with their sessions, Ethics might look at that and go, okay, this guy's not getting tech in. He's not applying the Scientology technology properly, in other words, and it's not working. So he must have something going on. There must be some ethics situation there because we've tried to correct him. We've talked to him. He's not changing. He keeps screwing up. So something must be up ethics-wise. That's the assumption that's made in Scientology. Um, you know, for the purpose of Scientology, amongst others, is to apply Scientology. Therefore, when we, when tech is in, ethics actions tend to be dropped, okay? So if, a, if an auditor is producing tons of hours every week or a course room supervisor is producing tons of completions every week, ethics tends to leave them alone. If the statistics are going up, 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 the guy is doing the job he's there to do, and Ethics kind of goes, okay, we can leave him alone. We'll, 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 you know. He might have a report or two about being snippy or snipey, or maybe he did something he wasn't supposed to do. And Ethics sees that a report, and they go, well, this is off the rails. But then they look at his statistics. Theoretically, okay, all of, everything I'm telling you right now is theoretically. This is how it's supposed to happen. This is not how it really happens, but it's how it's supposed to happen. So, so theoretically, ethics would get this report, see that he did something off the rails, but if his statistics are going up, ethics goes, eh, he's got ethics protection. And that's laid out in this issue, right? Um, ethics actions are often used to handle down individual statistics. A person who is not doing his job becomes an ethics target, okay? And it's assumed if your statistics are going down that you're not doing your job. Now, here's where we get to the ca-con part. And I'm just going to read it to you verbatim so you get exactly what Hubbard said. Uh... In an ancient army, a particularly brave deed was recognized by an award of the title of Ka Khan. It was not a rank. The person remained what he was, but he was entitled to be forgiven the death penalty ten times in case in the future he did anything wrong. That was a Ka Khan. That's what producing high statistics staff members are, ca-cons. They can get away with murder without a blink from ethics. Okay, that's, that's what we're talking about there. And then there's paper piece of paper number three here was a was an addendum Hubbard wrote called Kahkhan, and this was this was put out in May of 1982, and it says. The title of ka signifies a person who is a consistently producing high statistics staff or crew member or executive. Such people are valuable. A ka title is likewise valuable and should not be taken lightly, nor should it be awarded lightly. Now, I want you to also note here that he specifically said that it refers to a high statistics staff member or crew member or executive. So John Travolta, as a celebrity, is none of those things and should not be awarded Ka Khan as such. You see, it violates what Hubbard said. But that's just one tiny little example of where I mentioned earlier, in theory, this is how it works, but in practice, maybe not so much. Um, Oh, Hubbard goes on to say here that it is the executive director international and another high post title, the commanding officer of CMOINT, for those of you who are curious, if any of you know what that means, uh, are the authorities empowered to make such an award. So it's very, very high level um, person that is awarding this, this Ka Khan award. And it says, should it occur that an executive or an ethics officer uh, deem it warranted to cancel ka status or take away one or more KaCon lives, that person or body must actually write to the authority mentioned above who awarded the title. So it can't be that a lower level person takes one of those lives or gets the person in trouble without sending it up the chain of command first. Award the title when it is deserved. When awarded, accept the title with the pride of ownership it deserves. When accepted, continue to assume your responsibilities in the manner befitting the honor of the title, for a Ka-Khan is a leader among leaders, okay? So that is the sum total of what L. Ron Hubbard wrote about Ka-Khan, and I think that should answer the question and any other questions you might have about that, because that's all he said. Bob McDermott, I was out of Scientology for about 40 years, but maintained a level of interest with my only contact being their never-ending letters, magazines, and other promotion via the United States Postal Service. Then they somehow got my phone number and started calling me. Each time, I firmly told the caller I did not want to be called and that I was done buying books and services. The calls continued until I eventually changed my number. I'm curious to know how the Church of Scientology telemarketing works. What means do they take to find former members' telephone numbers? Is there a call center and is it computerized? Do they have a folder, online or paper, with a record of my calls? Did they note my repeated requests to stop calling? Okay, Bob, uh, yes to all of the above questions. Yes, they do have a call center. Yes, they do telemarketing. Yes, they are at it all day long. And yes, they do have a computerized system and a hard copy system because they print notes and stuff and stick it in actual folders. But those folders are also duplicated digitally and they use those for call center notes. And yes, those notes should be updated with every single time you told a person, I don't want to be called, please stop calling me. That's not going to get you off their lists. They don't care if you ask to be taken off their lists. What they do care about is if you threaten legal. And this is, again, a point of the policy versus the real world. So I can't guarantee you that threatening a legal action is going to get you removed from the list. But according to L. Ron Hubbard policy, it's supposed to. You could also start chanting OT material at them on the phone. Hey, how's Xenu doing today? Is he blowing up any volcanoes? You know, that kind of thing. And uh, that might or might not get you off the lists. Um, but they do skip tracing. They they invest in the same kinds of uh, LexisNexis database access as uh, bill collecting services use or private investigators use. Scientology pays, uh, you know, a pretty penny for that so that they can track people down and contact them and resell them on uh, coming back to Scientology. That's the entire effort and it has been for at least the last, um, oh gosh, 15 years or so that they've been doing this. They went full boogie, you know, uh, balls to the wall when the basics uh, were re-released, when all those basic books and lectures, I think that was 2004 or six or something. Um, it's all a little hazy to me because I was on the RPF <laughs> during most of that time. So, uh, so I wasn't really on the main lines when all that stuff really started going down. But, um, but it was around that time period. And, um, and they will just keep coming after you. You know, that's just kind of their nature. So, that's how that works? M.A.K. Is there or do you know of moles in Scientology that feed information to the outside of their organization? Also, are you aware of Scientologists who want to leave but are finding it hard to make that transition? I can't even imagine what it would be like to be stuck and unable to make that first step. And are you and others there to help them through this transition? Um, Pretty much yes to all the above, again, um, yes, there are people within the world of Scientology who do contact us, SPs, us, you know, as critics, us advocates, uh, about what's going on inside the church, that does happen, I've had people contact me who are still Scientologists in good standing, even though it's completely verboten for them to ever have any interaction with me at all. And they've spilled some beans on things. I've had, uh, also, of course, Tony Ortega talks about having sources within the Scientology world, and I'm sure other critics do too. Um, it's, you know, it's not something we seek out. Particularly, it's something more that it's, it's more something that finds us. And then I'm, you know, I'm just trying to help people out. So I'm wide open to receiving communication from any quarter. And I do. I, you know, I wanted to answer this question because. Uh, you asked about, you know, a trying to make that transition. That's why we have the Aftermath Foundation specifically to help them to make that transition. That's why it was created. And I'll put a link below to the Aftermath Foundation so you guys can link up to their website if you don't know what that's all about. It is a, a nonprofit that was set up specifically and run by ex-members of Scientology to help transition people who are just coming out of Scientology or the Sea Org and help them out if they need um, some financial aid or other assistance. Um, As far as me and and others uh, helping people, that happens all the time. I am basically barraged with calls and emails and texts and things all day long. I mean, I really am. And uh, I'm not whining about it. I'm just letting you guys know what's going on, right? And I get, I get probably once every two or three days, I get somebody reaching out to me asking for help with their family, asking for help themselves, or they have a family member in a cult. And it's not just Scientology at this point. I've been contacted by lots of different groups. And, uh, and I am always willing to help. I have never charged for that. Um, A lot of my time goes to it and maybe I should figure something out on that, but I just never have been able to figure out how to put that into the conversation. Um, And it's not really what I'm, you know, I'm not a licensed therapist or anything like that, so I'm not trying to, I'm not, I don't try to pretend to give people therapy when they call me. (laughs) I just try to give them the best advice I know how to give them as to how to deal with the cult situation that they're involved in or how to come out of that situation. And from my own experience, most of the time when people are coming out or they are freshly out, I tend to back off in terms of the advice. I, you know, years ago, I was, I was the, the fire hose, the font of information. I couldn't wait to give it all to the person. And I learned that that's too much, too fast, and doesn't work. And so I just back off. And I say, look, when you're ready for some information, you know, contact me. I'm more than happy to help direct you in certain directions that might help Um, give you some advice or direction on certain things you're running into. Um, You know, when you first come out, of course, uh, it's all about the basics. It's about, you know, having a roof over your head, food in your belly and transportation or in a job, right, and getting those things under control as quickly as possible. Before those things are handled, there isn't any other conversation that should be had that's the first thing to deal with, right, is is get the basics in, make sure that that there's security, that there's autonomy, and that there is uh, sustenance and income, right? All of those things have to happen right away. Whether there's a support system for the person or whether the person's doing it all themselves, somehow that has to happen. And then once that's under control, then you can start talking about, okay, what happened to you and get more into the the details of their experience and how they're going to acclimate to this new existence and new life outside the bubble world and build up a new support system and build a build basically build a new life for themselves and maybe along at at, at that point that you start having conversations about you know, maybe therapy or education and stuff like that, right? That's how, that's how I've tended to deal with it. Maybe there, maybe there are other ways of going about it or other ways of, of helping people out, but as an individual, that's, the best, that's what I've found to be the best way to go. So, you know, that's, uh, that's some information for you about that. I hope that uh, answers your question. Gemma Hood. In your discussion on the Mormon Stories podcast about your life after leaving Scientology, you mentioned that you had suffered PTSD as a result of your experiences. It is incredibly admirable that you have become so willing and able to openly discuss your difficult past to help people. I wondered what advice you might have for others suffering from PTSD to overcome their demons and use them as a force for positive change in their lives. Okay, well, here's a chance where I get to give a little bit of advice, like I was just talking about in my last answer um i don 't know that I have any kind of special lock on this at all other than I have the gift of gab uh, you know I, I I talk and i don 't have a problem talking. I, I communicate quite readily and I, um, I, i'm actually i 've come to learn over the last few years as i 've sort of shed some of the Scientology compunctions and habits and compulsions. That I'm not actually as communicative as I used to think I was. I'm not as extroverted as I used to think I was. I tend to introvert a little bit at social events and stuff. But the driving purpose of helping people is front and center and always has been. And as far as I can see into the future, always will be. And that purpose is, is what has kept this going and kept me going more than any other single thing. Um, so I say that not because I'm trying to toot a horn or put myself on a pedestal. I'm putting that out there as a motivation for potentially for people out there, you know, who are watching this right now, as to how you can help overcome some of the the reticence or shyness or difficulty or even you know mental stress and trauma that that one tends to experience sometimes when triggered by things uh, that you know, turn on some of that, some of those PTSD symptoms. I I know it's rough. I've been there, man. You know, I get it. And I've, and I've talked to other people who have experienced PTSD and of course, you know, therapists and stuff about this. And it's not a, a light burden and it's not something to take lightly. That all being said, um, kind of taking it lightly has been the best way I've had to deal with it. You know, um, because I haven't had the benefit of going and getting hours and hours of therapy or anything like that, I've educated myself instead. And then I've tried to deal with it that way. And um, and the catharsis for me has been talking to you guys about it. Um, which is why I keep putting out there that I think being a, a, maybe not a full-blown activist, but certainly at least somebody who's willing to sit and answer questions or you know, talk about their experiences. Um, I'm not sure that I have really super great advice about how to bury your soul, or how much you should or shouldn't. I, you know, I mean, everybody has their own individual comfort zone. But what I can tell you is this: this desire or motivation to help people gets me over a lot of hurdles. Um, I don't really think about. You know, maybe, maybe um, my past experience of not having a lot of privacy also contributes to my uh, ability to just sort of blah stuff about myself that other people seem to have a hard time doing. Um, so maybe that's also part of why I can talk the way that I do about stuff, is because I have a very long background of not being allowed to have secrets. <laughs> You know that was kind of a new thing I had to learn, and learning about boundaries was a new thing for me and, and only you know again very recently has has that has a new layer of that come up where it's become even more clear to me how and why boundaries exist. But taking on um, the role of self therapy or self help requires that you interact with other people. you can't do it in a vacuum. None of us are alone in this world and none of us should pretend that we are. There's a support system for all of us out there. And we just have to either build it or find it or a combination of those two things. We tend to start with family. Sometimes that's helpful and useful. Sometimes family are triggering and more harmful. But maybe there's even some remote family member or some, you know, familial connection that's not so triggering, not so bad. And if you can glom on to something that's already there as a support structure, you know, it, 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 it's a good idea to do so if you can. But... Um, within limits, of course, and avoiding toxic relationships or toxic connections because that's the last thing you need. In other words, you wouldn't want to come out of a cult like Scientology and go to your family if the family members kept telling you every day what a fucking idiot you were for being a Scientologist all that time. That's not helpful. And that you, you don't need to hear stuff like that. You don't need stuff like that being put on your plate, right? It's not, It's not useful. And for family and friends of people who are involved in cults, you know, please don't do that. It, it, it really—it just sets the person back. What they need is kindness and compassion and support and understanding, not judgment. Uh, the, you know, they got—they got plenty of judgment in the cult. They don't need to come out of a cult and get more judgment from you. <laughs> you know. Anyway, um, probably a little bit all over the place on this answer because I'm just drawing things from all over the place as I'm as I'm answering this here as it, as it comes to me. Um, but as far as but all of this does fit under this umbrella of what advice I would give to people who are suffering from triggering or from PTSD is to, you know, basically get into an environment somehow, anyhow, where toxic elements aren't there, and then just start talking to the people that you can talk to. You know, just start getting it out. If you can't talk, write. Write it down. Get a journal. Write a book, uh, write a story, write a poem, (laughs) you know, write a sentence, write a word. Just start with that. You know, just start writing. Um, For some people, that'll be an amazing form of self-therapy. For some, it won't be. It's okay. Give it a try. See what happens. Um, You know, and just use, build and use whatever support system you can around yourself. Um, that's the best advice I know how to give. I know it's general. I know it's not specifically helpful for you who are watching this right now. And that's why the personal connection, and that's why I say I'm willing to help. Uh, there are other people who are willing to help out there. There are actually, once you start looking, There are an amazing number of resources out there, and and I'm not just talking about $100 an hour therapists. I mean, there are government resources, social service resources. You know, when I did some suicide prevention training here in Colorado, I was blown away by the two-page small print number of places I could call to get help if I was feeling suicidal. there's lots and lots of resources out there. That's just one thing. That's just one part of the uh, help that's available. There are other social resources out there. Most people are actually kind of amazing when it comes to wanting to help other people. If you get past all the baloney and nonsense, people are actually pretty kind and pretty amazing. And um, and that's still true today. I still firmly believe that. So overcoming your own Inability or unwillingness to ask for help might be one of the first biggest barriers. But please trust me when I tell you that it is a necessary barrier to get over. Because it is, um, there are there are great benefits to be uh, reaped by asking for some help, you know. And that's, uh, anyway. I hope all of that did something useful. (laughs) You know, it was a lot, I was, like I said, I was kind of all over the place there, but I hope that advice uh, is somewhat informative and helpful, and um, I'm sure I will talk about this more again in the future. But thanks, Gemma, for asking about that. I'm I'm glad I got a chance to talk about that a little bit. Ah! It is time for Flash Answers. Tina Sofer, are Scientologists allowed to drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes slash cigars? I'm sure it sounds like a stupid question, but I have read that they do not believe in mind-altering drugs. Coffee and alcohol are mind-altering, so I'm wondering if the pick and choose to fit their needs. I can't find these answers anywhere. Tina, Scientologists can drink and smoke to their heart's content. They have no policies about that at all, except that they cannot drink within 24 hours of going into an auditing session. Uh, They can smoke and many, many Scientologists do. They can drink and many, many Scientologists do. Narciso, why did Pat Broker never go public? Because I believe he was well aware of the fact that David Miscavige could and would have him done away with if he challenged David Miscavige any further than he already had. I think Pat Broker was more than happy to get as far away from Scientology and never think about it or talk about it ever again. And considering some of the crap that guy pulled, you know, he probably didn't want to think about it a whole lot again. I'm not, Pat Broker is not somebody I have a whole lot of uh, sympathy for. Um, And keep in mind that Miscavige did pay millions of dollars to have that guy followed for decades and Pat Berger didn't even, ostensibly, didn't even know that was happening. You know, uh, could he have been followed by a couple guys for that many years and never known? Who knows? But if he had a hint that it was happening, that alone would definitely give him uh, cause to never open his mouth about any of it. Jim Gattell, did LRH really invent the dictionary? No, Jim, LRH did not really invent the dictionary. Okay, guys, thanks for coming around and watching the show this week. I hope my uh, maunderings and ramblings here were of some use, were helpful, educational, informative in some way, maybe a little entertaining. (sighs) Thanks for coming around. Uh, This is the Christmas season, so if you would be so kind as to consider throwing me some love this season, I would really, really appreciate it. Uh, I could always use the help, and we got to keep these lights on and this show going somehow. Thanks for coming around, guys. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.